Welcome to a special Academy Awards episode of Tell Me About Your Father's Daddy Issues. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. With the Academy Awards happening on April 25, we figured it was a great time to talk about how the themes of dads and patriarchy play out in so many of this year's Oscar-nominated films. There's the father, Minari, Time, Borat's subsequent movie film, Judas and the Black Messiah, Another Round, Hillbilly Elegy, and Onward, all of which explicitly refer to the impact of fathers. So naturally, we're delighted to welcome our special guest, Mm -hmm. Chief Critic at Vanity Fair, Richard Lawson. Hello. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's a delight to have you. And a great honor. (laughs) The honor of our lives. Just like the Academy Award. Sorry. It's an honor just to be podcasted, I guess. Just to be podcasted. (laughs) So anyway, before we get to the Academy Award stuff, Richard, can you please tell the story about your father and the documentary that was made about him? Yeah. Um... So my father's brother, my uncle John, was a substance abuse counselor living in Paris at the end of his life. Mm. And one of the people who he met through the you know AA and various things was a Dutch filmmaker who wanted to make a documentary about my uncle because he had touched a lot of lives, both in the United States, but in Paris, there was a really big expat community of recovering addicts who he had helped or you know interacted with in some way. But while she was kind of starting to make that, my uncle passed away and my dad flew out to Paris and was there for about a month and a half, kind of packing up his apartment and or organizing memorial service, all that stuff. And he and the filmmaker got to know each other. And she just learning that my father's life was so different than my uncle's. She decided to make this documentary about both of them, um, which involved her traveling to the United States, to my parents' house filming my father doing various things like singing in an empty uh, auditorium because he was in he's in a chorus my mom sort of knew about this obviously because there were cameras on the house sometimes my sister and i didn't know at all until my dad just kind of randomly was like oh this documentary that this woman made about me is premiering at the rotterdam film festival (laughs) and we were like what are you talking about and so he my sister flew out with him to to go to the premiere and uh, and so my, I couldn't fly out for various reasons, but my sister went with my father to the premiere of this film. There was like a Q&A with my dad and the filmmaker after the screening. I think it was not hugely attended. There were uh, there was a movie poster with my dad's face on it wow. in this cinema in the Netherlands. Um, I later got a DVD copy of the film uh, and watched it. And it's a strange watch. There's a brief snippet of me as a little kid which I've never seen video footage of myself as a little kid and it's weird to hear your voice mm-hmm. from that yes. young um, yeah. and the filmmaker I met her because they brought the film to New York for a tiny little documentary festival here and we became Facebook friends as you did in that day and she started kind of pestering me to cover the film in some way a review Ooh, or sure. an article an interview which would be completely unethical A because <laughs> yeah. I'm in the movie and my dad yeah. is the subject of it. Right, like rate your performance now. Were you did you make yourself cry? <laughs> I I I almost did actually. Um but it was a very strange interaction that kind of kept going. There had also been something where the filmmaker wanted to sleep on my sister's couch in her tiny apartment in Brooklyn Ugh, rather fair. than pay for a hotel. Yeah. Sure. My mother, my sister had never met this person. So it was just a sort of weird circumstance. And also, I mean, the other thing I should say about not wanting to cover it for work 
was that like it's a tiny 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 movie that about probably 20 people around the world have ever seen and it was like that's not really coverage worthy (laughs) for us so um yeah it was a really surreal thing that is a weird like my family did not have camcorders growing up i don't have endless footage of myself as a kid or know what i sounded like as a little kid i think that would be really weird to experience it felt like i was looking at someone else yeah like it really yeah. was yeah, yeah i've seen pictures of myself of course from that mm-hmm. age but like hearing my eight-year-old voice yeah which was by the way like extremely gay and I, <laughs> <laughs> which i didn't realize at the time of course but Aww. now it's all too clear yeah what about your dad like how did it feel to see him centered in the frame all the time um it was really weird and like my dog my parents dog was in it and by the time i saw the film the dog had died oh and so it was just like and it was a kind of a documentary about my uncle's death it was just a very very surreal experience that like felt a little bit voyeuristic on the filmmaker's part like Mm. why are you why are you doing this like there's not my dad has lived a good life but nothing remarkable you know I, i say that it was a documentary made about my father and people think wow is he like you know some mover and a shaker no He's a professor, a retired professor, like that's it. But yeah, it was a very peculiar thing and made me think, you know, germane to the subject of this podcast, like it kind of reframed my dad for me, mm-hmm. at least for a brief period of time, maybe just the extent of watching the movie. What did he think of it? Oh, he has a little vain streak. So I think he was quite happy. I think he really did believe it to be a tribute to my uncle, which it was. But there are these weird moments where my uncle had, um, I don't know what the medical term is, but he had throat cancer. So he had like his voice box removed, essentially. So he had the mm-hmm. kind of hole in his neck thing. And he could speak, but it was very garbled. And anyway, there are these scenes in this documentary of my father basically lip syncing to my uncle speaking. That was the director's idea. <laughs> and that is creepy. And I don't like, I didn't like yeah. that part. Yeah, my yeah. mom hated that part. I don't know how my dad felt about it. <laughs> what is the movie called? Yeah. It's called uh, Oud Lang Syne, like the New Year's Eve song. Mm. I don't know why it's called that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Even though you haven't explicitly promoted it or reviewed it, I feel I can get a, a picture of what you're saying and your feelings about it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an art piece in a way. It's like non-linear. It's, it's just sort of, I mean, and there's the lip syncing thing I just mentioned. So it's not like narrative, which uh, I think in some ways is better because, you know, there aren't really details she can get wrong about my family's life if it's just kind of more abstract, I guess. Yeah. How uncomfortable to have the director pressure you to write about <laughs> professionally. Was it? Was that weird to navigate? Yeah, because she was close to my uncle, close to my father to a certain extent. I didn't want to disappoint her. You know, it's funny. I, I had this happen again recently. My cousin's kid is, I guess, almost college age. And he has started acting in like local films and where he lives. And he made a short that was at some tiny film festival during the pandemic. And he asked me to review it. And I had to tell him I can't review my cousin's kid's short yeah. feature. Yeah. For, for, for Vanity Fair. Fair. <laughs> or anyone else. <laughs> well, that brings up a question because I kind of, you know, I knew you first as a gawker superhero mm-hmm. back in the day before you were at Vanity Fair, just as a fan, as a reader. Mm-hmm. And then I met Matthew Philp, and he, I've been to a couple of your backyard birthday parties at bars. <laughs> yeah. Um, But it was kind of surreal to start seeing your name pop up on, you know, movie posters in the subway where Mm -hmm. it says like Richard Lawson says this. What is it like to be the chief critic for a major 
publication and how does it affect your relationships? Do you feel like you can be open and free with your critiques and still be liked in your social circle? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely weird to see still my name in like a trailer or a poster or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, They like basically put a whole review I wrote on one of those poster boards and put it in a movie theater lobby, the Angelica. And I never went to go see it and take a picture of it, but I thought that was so cool. That's fun. It's also because the the magazine is well known. It's a lot of pressure to be like, I am the opinion haver for this magazine about, you know, the movie stars we put on the cover, <laughs> um, which, you know, can be tricky to navigate, but it's cool. I, I think my mind has been opened a lot to film since I started this job because I get to go to film festivals in various places, which forces me to sit down and watch movies that I might not otherwise, because I don't know, I'm averse to whatever the subject matter is, or sometimes I feel a little bit daunted by four hour Chinese language movies, you know, but like, mm. but I get to watch them now and, and, and that's really been great. For myself and good for my you know relationships like you mentioned like i can recommend things with a broader survey of what's out there i do find though that it's kind of a mix of like some people just want to like every week ask you what should i watch i would say about half of my friends or family will ask me routinely what should i watch this week or this weekend or whatever but on the other side of that like my parents my dad especially I don't think he reads my reviews. Like he'll he'll ask me if I read so and so's review of a movie in the New York Times. Oh, and I'm like, Dad. well, your son also reviewed that movie, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not meant in it. You know, he he's very supportive of of me in right. all ways. But like, it's just kind of a funny disconnect. And I'll come home. I mean, this is probably going to end next year because I think they're stopping the physical you know DVD screeners around award yes. season. But in years past, I've been able to go home with this bounty of movies Mm. that have just come out or some of which haven't even come out yet in theaters. And it's always funny what my parents gravitate toward my mother, especially like I one one year I came home with like Jackie and 20th century women and all these like big awardsy movies that I like. Yeah. And she sifted through through the pile and was like, oh, the man who invented Christmas about like (laughs) Charles Dickens (laughs) with the guy from Downton Abbey. And I was like, that is the one you went right to. That's the one. (laughs) Yeah. Incredible. If you'd like to support this podcast, please head to patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather where for as little as $3 a month, you can access bonus dad content and other fun extras. Richard, can you talk about the idea of themes in Academy Award nominated films each year? Like a couple of years ago, I was I watched all the shorts, the short animated films, and they all seem to be about grief and or making dumplings. And it was like, what, did they all get a memo or something? Anyway, yeah. but it seems like there are themes, but then also the Academy, I guess, can be like successful or unsuccessful in representing the cultural themes at the time um, and the kind of culture that we're living in. How does this year's set of films, in your opinion, represent life as we know it right now, politically and socially? Yeah, I mean, the old rubric for if you were trying to do like a, you know, like an office pool or an Oscar party pool, if you had to make predictions was if there is a short film, be it animated documentary, you know, live action scripted feature or short rather, if there's one about the Holocaust, that's going to win. 
like right. literally yeah. every year for like every two year. decades <laughs> um that has faded some so yeah there sometimes are these funny themes that kind of recur and this year it's hard to say what this year is because we don't really know what else there would have been had the pandemic not happened i think we have a sense of some big films like west side story like that didn't come out but like there were probably smaller movies that they're just going to hold for this year or next year so they can go through the traditional festival circuit so maybe those would have better emboldened a sort of 2020 theme in in film but what we have now, I think, is interesting in that it's less about what the films are in conversation with each other about and more about what the Academy is trying to project, which isn't to say that any of the nominated films are only there because the Academy can look good because they nominated X movies about people of color or directed by women or, you know, but that certainly is increasingly more of the mission statement when they go about the nominating process. So I think in that way, they're very much a reflection of the year and also in some ways a reflection of how hollywood kind of digests that sort of social justice discourse in imperfect ways like i would say promising young woman which is an interesting movie isn't quite what like the me too movement was like asking for you know but it's the hollywood sort of version of that um i would say similarly about judas and the black messiah which i think is an interesting movie but like i think there are some things in there that they it's sort of a a filtered through the hollywood lens this you know the the black lives matter movement the films that we pulled out were as i mentioned the father minari borat judas hillbilly elegy another round time ma rainey's black bottom i mean there's like a real solid kind of father theme going on here would you say yeah yeah that's i mean it's 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 what we were talking matthew before it's interesting that like the Oscars are coming up. Your podcast is about fathers. And yes, this is a very father heavy year to the extent that there is a movie called the father. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it ding, feels tailor made for view three, um, which is fun. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that stuff about fathers is very common in general in prestige cinema, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very recurring theme, much less so about mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a movie about a mother, usually the lead actress would be nominated and nothing else in the movie would be nominated. They don't yes. get best picture nominations, you know, but I think if you look a little closer, what's interesting is that they're about fathers in so many different ways, the absence of the looming presence of the loss of, you know, mm. um, it's not just a straight down the line, like trying to grapple with my tough old dad, which we've seen a lot of in the past. Yeah, different kinds of fathers for sure. Yeah, the whole spectrum is there this year. I think what like stood out for me with Minari particularly was the use of black smoke as the looming pressure on man, our man. Like he's at the chicken mm-hmm. factory and there's the smokestack with the chimney, with the smoke coming out of it. And they're explaining to his son that the male chickens are burnt because they're useless. So you've got to try and be mm-hmm. useful. And he's like struggling to be useful. And then his, of course, his shack with every investment he's ever made is burnt. The, the fact that they made fire and smoke, the kind of metaphor for the kind of pressure that men feel from society was kind of interesting to me. That's yeah. Interesting. I really, really loved Minari. And I think that something that me is too. so moving about that film is that, you know, Lee Isaac Chung, the writer director, it's, autobiographical i think pretty closely not everything obviously is real but it feels like this incredible act of trying to understand a stern father Mm -hmm. as an adult and try to like really empathize and sympathize with him and and what he was going through at the time when as a kid it seemed like why is dad dragging us out to the middle of nowhere to live in this trailer and he's obsessed with this 
farm that's not really working and the kind of stuff of like dad looming over you as a child that now Chung is an adult who is maybe around his father's age, what Stephen Young's character is in the film, mm-hmm. uh, is trying to just kind of understand that. And I think there's something very heartwarming about that, uh, that act. Yeah. But also like this, the force majeure moment where he's sitting in the, in the, in the hospital waiting for results and he clearly chooses the farm over the family Mm -hmm. and there's a real immaturity in that and his wife is just like turns and is like horrified there's something so loathsome about that decision that's what i liked about the movie is that it does i think show the other side you see a lot of his wife's exasperation with his selfishness and with his as you said matt immaturity and i like that it's not just a story about you know, it's not through the lens of here's this hardworking, totally focused father that didn't give up on his dream. It's and whose family also suffered because he was so tunnel visioned on it, you know, or his marriage suffered at least. And you see that. And I, I like that that aspect is included in the story. Yeah. It made me think of Fun Home, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the most beautiful musicals I've seen in a long time, maybe ever. Mm-hmm. And that is such a kind of radical act of empathy i think because it like he is a monster and she knows that and she depicts him as such in the show and i guess in the graphic novel which i haven't read but also there's a love there and i think that that kind of scene like the the scene you're talking about matthew with the father kind of choosing the farm over the family you know that's unvarnished he's like this was a shitty decision or a shitty kind Mm -hmm. of set of priorities and yet there's also a lovingness elsewhere in the portrayal of the father yeah i mean totally it's not cut and dry I also thought it was interesting. I read an interview with Lee Isaac Chung, the director, who said that one of the bigger autobiographical aspects of it was his mother, as does the mother in the film, and the grandmother in the film, the grandmother's husband, her father, um, is killed. I don't think she ever even knows her father. I like that the need for a father and a family unit, and you see how much the grandmother and the wife had to sort of harden themselves possibly to navigate the world without him. I I thought that was a good. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was good. That's actually my quote on the Minor- Minari poster. It says, I thought that was good. Richard Lawson, Vanity Fair. Well done. Good. But can we just quickly talk about Onward for a second? It just it, Yes. Th- here are the reasons I want to talk about this. Richard, you just watched it. Also, mm-hmm. it came out the day that quarantine really went into effect on the 17th mm. or something. Mm. And I think it just wasn't in cinemas. I mean, it's fared really well. And I'm glad that it got this attention because it's such a great movie. It's so, the cast is amazing. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Chris Pratt, Tom Holland, Octavia Spencer. And it's a magical story about two sons that are dealing with the death of their father and they go on a quest to try and bring him back for one last conversation because they live in a magical land but i don't know that many people have actually seen it i'd love to know what you thought Richard. yeah yeah that was one of those movies that just like got swept up in that march of last year tidal wave and i hadn't paid much attention to it i think partly the chris pratt aspect was a turnoff <laughs> because of his personal politics um the uncool chris man uh, yeah the worst chris if it's been decided the hillbilly Uh, (laughs) elegy of chris's yeah the glenn close's wig as mama (laughs) thank you you. yes so yeah i was a little bit 
I avoided it, but I watched it to talk to you all about it. And I'm glad I did. I think ever since Pixar became so ascendant and dominant, really, in that space of like, beautifully animated, clever movies, but also that were going to break your heart, like, in the case of Up in the first 10 minutes, in the case of Toy Story 3 in the last 10 minutes, that style of like whimsy, but then it's melancholy can get a little formulaic at this point. But I think that Onward the denouement uh, really surprised me because I it it's a kind of risky thing for children for a movie aimed at children that's like he doesn't get the thing he yeah. wants really he or what he thinks he wants but finds a peace and a sort of comfort in an unexpected way and I think it's really lovely and nuanced and I would hope would be the kind of movie that a kid would watch with their parent or their guardian whoever and have an interesting conversation about, frankly, death after it. <laughs> that was the thing, like that, I had so much of my own childhood was so similar to that, like the photos of the pregnant mother with the young son and no father mm. there, and she went through the pregnancy herself. That happened to my mother. We have the photograph. And I, I was so affected by that. I couldn't believe I was seeing this on the screen. So I did the, that exact thing. Like I said to my family, oh my God, you have to watch this film. It's like kind of what we experience. I mean, obviously minus the manticore and the spells and most of the magic, you know, wasn't in our lives. In Australia, it wasn't really? Most of it we didn't have. We did, I mean, we don't have unicorns, but we we did have a lot of right. drunk elves. As, as you know, you and I have discussed <laughs> right. this. Yeah, and ruse yeah. and drunk koalas. Drunk koalas is a definite thing. Yes. But but anyway, yeah, I just thought it was a, a magical film and it was I actually tweeted at the writer. I was like, I'm so glad that you got this and he wrote, you really? know, like he liked my tweet and I was like, Oh my oh. god, I'm so validated. Oh. Have your brothers seen it, Matt? I don't know. I don't think so. It's hard to get. You gotta be like Disney Plus and it's you know, it's sort of behind a bunch of walls. But maybe after mm. this, if it wins, then it'll get sort of renewed attention. I hope it does. It's not gonna win. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, no. It's not going to win. Oh, well, great. Thanks. No. What's going to win for Best Animated? Uh, either Soul or Wolfwalkers, I would think. Yeah. Okay. I could be wrong. You know, I've been wrong in the past. Do you want to talk about one of the films that we kind of really didn't love? Mm. For me, it was the Chicago 7, okay. just because I'm allergic to Aaron Sorkin. I mean, there's other films I didn't like, like Hillbilly Elegy, that I guess had that absent father mm-hmm. motif also. Richard had had pointed out that, you know, Hillbilly Elegy should be in the category of father absent films. And there are some scenes. Well, just to give a a little recap, it is uh, based on J.D. Vance's blockbuster memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, that describes his coming of age in Appalachia in Kentucky. And his mother is mentally ill and addicted to opioids. And he goes off to Yale. And I think I'm not a big Ron Howard person anyway, but I really felt like he was asleep at the wheel. And I'm shocked that Glenn Close is nominated for this role of the grandmother whose husband dies. And of course, it's her doing her Glenn Close thing which is great, but it's a wig roll and I wasn't moved. And I was irritated by, you know, the whole cliche scene of JD in New Haven sitting down to dinner and not knowing which fork to use. And also the total lack of accents whatsoever, except when he was calling his grandmother Mima or 
mama or whatever. I thought I don't Glenn know. Close was like, bring it in real hard with her accent, right? No? She was, but he, oh, he wasn't. wasn't. And Sorry. he was the, Got it. oh, that actor. Couldn't they get Jake Lacey? He's like the <laughs> affable white guy that I want to see in that That's one. Oh, I, so much who's better that casting. Yeah. actor? Yeah. Anyway, but of course, Amy Adams goes for it every time. She's always like sobbing and bursting blood vessels. And she's fantastic, but it just felt so uneven to me. Yeah. I saw a really good tweet too, Aaron, going back to the wig performance that someone said that Glenn Close's character in that movie is actually the Hallmark character, Maxine. You know, that old mm-hmm. woman that's like, you're not going to tell me that rain's pissing on my ankle. And don't tell me it's raining. Renee Zellweger. And, <laughs> yeah. Richard, why does the Academy love a really mediocre <laughs> maudlin movie with an A-list, with a prestige actress or actor in a wig <laughs> or a fake nose. Like, if you can trace this back to even, like, The Hours, the Nicole Kidman as Virginia Woolf, which we talked about a little bit on our last episode. What is that? Is that just because it's sort of checks off all the boxes of being crowd-pleasing? Or, like, why are we still Bad in this wigs. era of, like, oh my god, this movie is terrible, and it's nominated it is nominated i will say i was heartened that it only got that one nomination for glenn close you know i think the big thing there is that this is her eighth nomination she's famously never won and this was kind of just like well maybe this this will just let's just give it to her if glenn close (laughs) finally wins an oscar for a terrible performance in a terrible movie that everyone hates and she has to accept it over zoom that would be more of an injustice than her never winning such a good point (laughs) true But I think in general, like you mentioned the hours, you look at Charlize Theron and Monster. um, Mm -hmm. I would even argue to some extent, Hilary Swank and Boys Don't Cry. Mm -hmm. There is this sense that like the courage of a best actress winner is to like not be a beautiful movie star for two hours. That's right. Mm -hmm. The courage of a best actor is like Leonardo DiCaprio, like eating a bear in Revenant. You know, like there's a very different bar (laughs) set. Right. We'll talk about The Father probably towards the end. But, you know, when Anthony Hopkins does that Shadowlands crumple, you know, with his face, that cry, (laughs) you know, know that's it. It destroys you and and he's going to get the Academy Award. Yeah. Or the nom. Yeah, that's true. It's a different bar. It's a different bar for women. And that is interesting, Richard, like an actress willing to for lack of a much better word, be ugly, like suddenly makes a movie also <laughs> worthy or good. What a the weird phenomenon. For every time it works, though, I feel like there are also examples of it not. I mean, most recently, it hasn't come out yet, but I saw a movie at Sundance uh, last year called Three Good Days, I think it's called. And it's Glenn Close with Mila Kunis as her daughter, because, you know, that's a natural. They clearly look so alike. So much and, alike. <laughs> spitting of it. Yeah, spitting you know, of this it. Russian <laughs> person in this, like, Connecticut wasp. Um, but the funny thing about it is Mila Kunis is playing a sort of vague drug addict. I mean, they don't really get more specific than that. And so she's got the makeup and her hair is kind of, you know, not done up and bags under her eyes and she's doing all the ticks and the, you know, the yeah. shaking and all that stuff. And it's a truly wretched performance and it's a bad movie. But like you <laughs> see the intent there because it's a fine line between that and whatever Glenn Close is doing in Hillbilly Elegy, you know. What other movies were we all sort of disappointed in that made the the cut for the Academy? Matt, you mentioned another round and I was 
was sort of underwhelmed by it too. I think just comparatively, yeah. Comparatively. I I saw another round last night and I was prepared to be triggered with a capital T by it because I am the daughter of (laughs) the late alcoholic um, who never got sober. And it's a movie about a, a bunch of men who are friends who decide to do an experiment where they remain a little bit drunk, you know, they keep their blood alcohol at 1% throughout the day, and they see how much they loosen up. And the main character, Mads Mikkelsen, he plays this really shut off, shut down teacher who can't connect to his students, he can't connect to his wife, he's having a hard time in his marriage, and suddenly being a little bit drunk turns him into this confident, sort of magical Mm person and his life changes it but you know it's all a slippery slope they start drinking more they start experimenting more I did think that the scenes involving the breakdown of his marriage and uh, his dynamic with his own son's crumbling was very good and I would review that good (laughs) in quotes good Good period but then the ending I didn't love with him his character freeze framing jumping through the air oh talk about a spoiler (laughs) douche spoiler (laughs) douche spoiler because you said that like you were like oh I'm just prepared to be triggered by this and I almost wrote back going yeah I don't know not that I'm going to tell you when you're going to be triggered by something, but I was like, you know, maybe it won't. It did it. It did it. <laughs> it did it. Richard, what were your thoughts on another round? Yeah, I was not as up on it as um, some of my colleagues were. A friend of mine who is, well, her family's from Norway. Um, she told me that it is a pretty accurate depiction of like Scandinavian drinking culture. Not the microdosing part, but like, you know, the kids and you know all that sort of right. debauchery. But it just felt sort of dated i was like in an era when we've had like christine baranski microdosing lsd on the good life or the good the spinoff these guys like drinking alcohol like that didn't feel very like new or transgressive or anything it felt sort of just like i don't know Eh. but i think mads is good in it i like i mean he's a good dancer (laughs) um he is a good jazz ballet yeah yeah that's a good point about like being kind of dated and i guess there's something interesting about alcohol as like a sanctioned social thing that some people can handle and some people can't. But it is for, for people <clears throat> listening at home. These men are all high school teachers and it's framed against the, the drinking of like kids in the community and binge drinking, which is very American as well. And like the ways that it's sort of celebrated in youth culture or a part of being young. But it's also like the whole thing is an answer to the existential sadness that these men feel because they're not that successful or great or interesting, but perhaps they expected that they should be. Right. And it's like, oh, okay, your average men feeling like you should have done more with your life in these magnificent Danish house, like they're not with mansions, banging but they're hot like, wives, by the way, like just gorgeous, like the frumpiest one of kitchens. them all has a gorgeous wife. Come on. Yeah, that's a good point, Matt. I I almost, I feel like the fact that you learned that, spoiler, Mad's wife is having an affair. Sure. Or it's implied that she's she's gotten quite bored in the marriage, saves it from being utterly, like, in all caps, this was written and directed by a man movie, where it's like <laughs> the Woody Allen oh, right. effect sort of as well. This is like kind of a tangent. Richard, what's your, how do you, deal with Woody Allen films now. Would you go see them? Like, do you review them? What's the story? I reviewed 
Wonder Wheel, the one with uh, Kate Winslet, Jim Belushi, and Justin Timberlake. For how's that for a cast? Um, <laughs> it's very bad. I mean, Winslet's kind of doing something Tennessee Williams esque. It's th- that's interesting, but uh, that's the last one. I don't. I guess Rainy Day in New York didn't really come out in the United States. I have seen half of it on like a torrent, and it's extraordinarily bad. If, I mean, Woody Allen writing college student dialogue in 2018, 19. <laughs> oh it actually sounds macabre. It's, I mean, yeah, it actually right, is right. like from hell. It's really like a demonic kind of thing. <laughs> we turned we turned oh, no. it off because I thought it was going to like come through the TV and destroy us. <laughs> so I, I didn't watch his Amazon show. I think we're kind of like Vanity Fair has written a lot. Like Dylan Farrow has published stuff with us. And sure. We have clearly taken a side, I would say. Um, well, I actually, yeah. I mean, that's my view of it. The new incarnation. Right, of, exactly. Of um, Fair, yeah. So yeah, I don't anticipate when I would review something of his necessarily. You know, I reviewed Mel Gibson's last movie and I didn't hate it. And I felt kind of weird about that. But I think it's kind of a case by case basis. But I think Alan really kind of losing any distribution momentum or whatever, mm-hmm. or, you know, or like re- reliability that he had in the United States, that kind of helps matters a bit. And I don't think he'll his films will screen at big festivals anymore. So he'll be kind of, I think out, he's got a new one with like Gina Gershon is like his lead, I think. Really? Yeah. Cause like no one else will work with him. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised that Gina Gershon would work with him actually. Yeah. 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 It's a little Jesus. disappointing. But, well, okay. So speaking of not seeing films, one of the other films that has been nominated is the Borat subsequent movie film, mm, which is very point. much about the relationship between a father and a daughter. It is kind of right. But Richard, you don't do the Borat films. I've seen clips of both, but stuff that involves the, and I know some of the people involved, the real people are bad people, but like <laughs> stuff that involves like the embarrassment of real people while someone is playing a character. I really, mm. I can't watch it. It makes me so uncomfortable. I Like Ali G you didn't like? I mean, I watched that when I was like with college friends, you know, in college, but I kind of like cringed through it. You know, I, I it was hard to watch. Yeah. Nathan for you was a show I could never get with, even though people were oh, really into I, that show. I agree with that. Yeah, you know, so it just makes me uncomfortable, and I and I understand what Baron Cohen is doing, but yeah, I mean, I the last movie of his I saw was a scripted movie called The Brothers Grimsby, I think it's called, mm-hmm. and I walked out of it. I was supposed to review it, and I walked out halfway through because it's like one of the most homophobic movies I've seen in a long time. And uh, really, I think I was kind of like done with him after that. That said, I have seen clips of Maria Bakalova, who's nominated, (laughs) and she's, I mean, quite good. So how often do you walk out of films? Uh, Hardly ever. I walked out of that Mila Kunis movie (laughs) at Sundance because I was like, I'm starving and I need to not be in this room. I I walked out of, um, oh, God, Julie Taymor's movie about Gloria Steinem, The Glorias, was also at Sundance. And it's like a complete catastrophe. And that was more out of like, I just couldn't sit there and watch like this once great director kind of flailing on screen. Um, mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, I don't often because I really do, you know, I owe it to my professional uh, responsibilities. And I think also a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, sometimes a movie can turn around and much better than it began. Remember when we mm. went to the stage production of A Clockwork Orange and we walked out 30 minutes? Into One of it? the most grindingly miserable half an hours like of theater I've ever seen. I still am astonished it was made, but oh my God, it was just like so spineless. 
and everyone was walking out. I, too. I feel like I requested press tickets because like you and I had seen like the subway ads and it was just like a bunch of like sexy British men. And we were like, oh, that's that could be a fun little Friday amuse-bouche before we go out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was like actually like torture. It was kind of punishing us for for that desire. I think. Yeah. So we kind of <laughs> yeah. left and we're like, well, don't feel any guilt about asking for those free tickets. But it was started to come down to like, how do we justify our lives for this moment? Yeah if we're actually watching this nonsense. Well, because it's one thing to leave during intermission. It's another to get in an, in an intermissionless show, just stand up in the dark and walk out. That's interesting about what you said about his other, the brothers Grimsby being homophobic, him being Sasha Baron Cohen, just going back to Borat's subsequent movie film really quickly, because I think he uses the character of Borat. And I it was years ago that I saw Bruno. I won't even go into Bruno, but like for Borat is a commentary on things like misogyny and racism and homophobia. But is he really doing it at times to just kind of get away with getting those jokes into theaters or getting people to be like completely shocked? Sometimes you ever get that feeling when people are sort of pushing the envelope just to get away with making the joke. You know, they're not really saying anything. The Rudy Giuliani thing was was really shocking to me. And I, in fact, didn't watch that scene because it was talked about so much and written about so much that I didn't want to see him put his hands down his pants when he thought this girl was a A 15 year old prostitute. I just didn't want to see that. And I am kind of shocked that it's been played for laughs, even still. Like, why isn't he in jail? (laughs) Baron Cohen often walks that line of like, what, you know, is is depiction endorsement, you know, and is creating excuses to make these cruel jokes, I guess you could call Mm them. Is that just an exercise in just wanting to make those jokes, you know? Right. And I think you kind of just like know it when you see it. Like I, I know some, sometimes when a provocative joke is being done in the proper spirit of irony, I'm like, okay. And other times not. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of like ironic mm-hmm. racism, humor, like that kind of burbled up in Brooklyn, like, I don't know, 10 years ago that has now resulted Oof. in like genuine racism on behalf of like, you know, young socialists on popular podcasts that I won't name. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that there's, that's like, that it is a slippery slope. It's a, it's a fine line to walk. And I, I think right. that Baron Cohen, at least in Brothers Grimsby, I've never seen Bruno, definitely crosses that line. Well, what did you think of Sasha Baron Cohen in the Chicago 7 movie? I think Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman in Trial of the Chicago 7 is probably the second worst nominated performance this year. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next to Glenn Close, though I might actually say that he's worse than Glenn Close is. His wig is better. His wig is better. His Boston, well, Abby Hoffman was from Worcester, Massachusetts, kind of in the middle of the state. Yeah. It's, his accent's terrible, which, like, it's a hard accent. I was going to say, I was listening going, is he just fucking so it up like that. Nicole Kidman does sometimes when she just loses <laughs> yeah. control? Oh, yeah. Like, totally. Oh, her Upper East Side of Sydney. And I looked, yeah. Yeah, right. I looked him up and I'm like, oh, he's from Massachusetts. Okay, well, just let's let that Did go. Did you notice okay. a scene in The Undoing, if you all watched it, where Nicole Kidman just literally is speaking in an Australian accent. Absolutely. Amen. And also on Big Little Lies, she did that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Constant. In, in The Undoing, I felt sort of bad for her because there's Hugh Grant doing his regular accent, but she has to be American. And I I, I could see slipping up like that, but it's yeah. just a very funny like editing thing where it's like, you didn't pick the other take where she doesn't sound like she's on Bondi Beach. Right. Well, let's talk about some of the good ones because Time, the documentary... Uh stunning yes. 
directed by Garrett Bradley, was, I think one we all agreed on, was just a masterpiece for many reasons. It follows for 20 years, or at least 18 years of footage that the kind of the narrator, Sybil Fox Richardson, has collected since the 90s of just her interviewing herself or filming her life as her husband is in prison, incarcerated for 20 years for a crime that they both committed, a, a nonviolent armed robbery. It didn't lead to any deaths, but she confessed and pled down or pled guilty, and he did not. And he got put away for 60 years without the possibility of parole, I think in, is this Louisiana? And mm -hmm. she got yeah. off in three and a half years for the same crime. And then we follow her raising their six children over the decades, but it's over time. And so that's right. where the title comes in. Like he's doing time. They switch around in time. It sucks up a lot of time for the white women on the other end of the phone who are answering the phone at the lawyer's office to give you any information. It takes a lot of time for the prison recording to get done on its loop, sucking mm. up time when you could be talking to your loved one. And it's her time and it's their children's time away from their mm. father that really at the center of the story. And Richard, what did you think? What I love about time is that a lot of, oftentimes, um, it's really hard to tell if a documentary is well-made or if it's just that the subject matter is really interesting. Yeah. I, I think a lot of documentaries that tend to do very well are really straightforward. They're not cinematic, but they're just like about something interesting. I think in the case of time, it's both. It's beautifully constructed. So beautiful. It's in black and white. Yeah. And so it's my understanding we had, um, we, we did an interview with her on our podcast. I, I didn't do the interview, but that Garrett Bradley, who is, you know, a, a kind of fine artist too. She has she, her, a lot of her work is in like galleries, like installations and galleries and stuff. So this is a little bit more of a, like a more like straightforward, you know, commercial quote unquote film for her. But I think she was going to make the movie about her. And then I think she would, Sybil Fox Richards was like, oh, you know, I have all this footage that I've been filming. Yeah, 100 hours. I read up on this. She yeah. she did a, a movie years ago with her called Alone, which was a short and I think won some prizes. And then at the end of that filming with this incredibly dynamic woman, um, she's like, oh, I, I have 100 hours that I've actually been been doing. And that might be why they switched it to black and white to match the graininess and the, the style. Mm -hmm. But I thought, God, first of all, it's so genius to have it be black and white to juxtapose the stark contrast, if you will, uh, between the haves and the have nots, the incarcerated and mm -hmm. the, the free. Mm -hmm. But it also like looked like fine art photojournalism, like William Klein or something. So beautiful. What did you guys think? All of the footage of the little boys, you see her her Babies. incredible strength, the ways that she hung in there and did her time and her mother helped raise the children while she was in jail and the ways that she then went and talked to other women about having incarcerated family members and remaining strong. It should be said, too, they scraped all of their money together to hire a very expensive lawyer who said, don't take the plea, and like a week before the trial dropped them as clients. 
you know, just blow after blow for this family. You know, you see footage of her now almost adult son. Some are adults, some are in high school. One, I think, is nine or ten. Um, you see them growing up through the years and talking to him on the phone and thriving in school. And one is about to become a dentist. And for me, I thought there was a really touching scene where her littlest boy, she she's speaking to, to him on the phone, mm-hmm. to her husband, and he's supposed to be taking a bath and he kind of creeps into the room just to listen to his voice on the phone. And it's, it was very, that really touched me. Yeah. I mean, the same. I, I had a visceral reaction when they met at the end. Like, oh, God. Just all of this work and focus and just every part of her being controlling years. her ability to just keep going. And then finally she gets what she wants. And it's just like, I mean... I got tingles like it was sort of insane the way she's just screaming into the air with joy. You kind of get to watch a snippet of them like making love and I never used that word that was but it was incredibly beautiful like all this build-up and I didn't know that they would be reunited because you just expect that it will never happen and just the sheer power of you know love and her faith in him, it seemed beyond reality. And it's so sad. And he also didn't seem, he seemed to be on the same wavelength. Like he survived and he mm-hmm. wasn't he like, wasn't you broken. couldn't see him going, I'm I'm going to sit on the couch and like get angry at my wife and tell her to bring me like beer, you know, like on a Wednesday morning. Like you can't see him doing that. You can see no. them kind of making their lives work which i thought was cool yeah the footage of him coming home and there's a scene where he sort of surprises one of his twins who's and he doesn't really recognize him and his his youngest boy really looking at him and kind of wonder because he's meeting his dad for the first time this is all framed against uh sybil putting up a a cardboard cutout of their father hanging that (gasps) in the house right so that it was hanging on the wall throughout their childhood so that he was in the house in some sense. And then there's this very powerful scene where they they burn it in a barbecue pit when he comes home. They burn the cardboard cutout since they don't need it anymore. Oh, my God. I thought that was really tender. My dad always tells me this story about his father was a doctor who was stationed in what was then called Burma during World War II. And his younger brother, my dad's younger brother, was a baby when my grandfather shipped overseas for several years. And when he came back, my dad remembers my uncle saying to my grandmother, he seems like a nice man. And I just think that's so (laughs) strange about like the kids not, you know, having an awareness of a father, but not any sort of familiarity. And I think that what time as a, both a documentary, but also as a kind of urgent piece of political uh, messaging Mm-hmm. It does is, you know, a lot of stuff about like the problems of our incarceral system and and mm-hmm. the, the, the racism of of the courts and everything uh, tends to focus on like the Innocence Project and people thrown, you know, put in jail yes. or, you know, on death row for crimes they didn't commit. In this case, the crime was committed. Yep. Like we know that. Mm-hmm. And but this judge handed down this insanely overbearing sentence. Mm hmm. And I think when we hear about stories like that, we read like, oh, and this person got 30 years in prison. We say, okay, well, that's done. And it's like, no, it's not done. It, that The life continues on for both the person in prison and the people outside of prison. And I think this the movie really makes that manifest and really 
palpable to the extent that like if you don't walk away from that movie thinking like no one ever should get that amount of prison time for anything Mm -hmm. uh i don't know if you've watched it right (laughs) she says that she's like it is a long time it is a long time well she watches her her youngest boys become men and there's a couple scenes explicitly where she says that I also really noticed that usually when we're watching documentaries about prison or that have anything to do with prison, it's focused on, you know, usually men in prison working out. And there was one really important scene, I thought, where it's just her slowly doing her her reps. And it occurred to me, wow, I've never seen that before. Like the family having to strengthen themselves. In exactly the same way. And you can see her focusing her yes, rage. Yes. Yeah. And it never comes out of her. Her rage never, except for that one moment after she's had the phone call mm-hmm. and it just like comes out yeah. of her and then she ropes it back in and focuses and goes, what are I going to do next? It's sort of breathtaking control. So good. We could talk about it forever. Should we move on to the father? Folks, it's about dementia. There's a father, Anthony Hopkins, and there's a daughter, Olivia Coleman, right? And they're in an English flat. That's a big part of the mm-hmm. story. I always think I think of it as an English flat film. The set and the colors and the f- clothing are like a character in this film. Mm-hmm. It's so extraordinary. Um, Richard, you wrote about this and you said that after you watched it, you went and called your mom mm-hmm. to talk to her about it What or you texted her. What happened with that? I was interested to know. Um, she still hasn't watched the movie. So um, the, the context of that is that her mother uh, died of Alzheimer's disease um, after, you know, a good long while of being sick. And it's a just, you know, a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to, I'm sure, experience, but also to witness and, and be, you know, sort of a caregiver for. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, it's a really well-made movie. And I think it's very... Um, kind of like radically uh, empathetic about what that experience is. So in some ways it could be healing, but also in others I worried it could be triggering. So I think she's still Mm -hmm. kind of weighing that. Also, Mm -hmm. it hasn't, it's barely been out, you know, for like the general public to see. But I, you know, it's an interesting project because it, you know, it was a play first and, and the director and writer of the movie, you know, adapted his own play Mm. and I didn't see it on stage, but I kind of feel like it, probably is better as a movie because I think the visual language of it where there are these subtle shifts in like the tile in the kitchen and you know things like that that I don't know that you could communicate at that on stage and the surreality of scenes kind of playing into one another and the actors changing I think that works Mm -hmm. better in film and so I think it's rare that that's true but I think it in this case it is. 100% I was so surprised by that because you're really seeing dementia through his eyes who has it and Mm -hmm. his daughter's who's losing her her grip on her father as he loses his grip on reality and it's two point of views so you can kind of see where this is going like total obliteration yeah i i thought the the choice to have different actors to suddenly for people who haven't seen it who are listening there are scenes where characters who are well established are suddenly played by completely other actors and it's incredibly confusing and it creates this sort of waking nightmare feel it felt like an endless bad dream um which you know you've i've heard for people who have had parents be sick with dementia or Alzheimer's or 
that that it really is like a waking nightmare experience. And I really liked that they flipped the perspective between his daughter and him as well. There's a scene where she's putting him to bed and she's stroking his Mm. face and it's a very tender moment. And then she suddenly starts strangling him. And you don't know if it's her fantasy that, you know, he's such a, a burden at this point. She just kind of wishes that she could kill and him. And he's mean to her. Or she's so frustrated. Yeah, and he's mean to her. Or if it's his fear, if it's his nightmare that she's going to just get sick of him and kill him. It's, it's never clear to the viewer. And I think that's that really worked for this movie. Something I think other countries are better at doing than Americans is being tough like that in movies about subject matter like this. Like I think, I think still Alice, which Julianne Moore won an Oscar for about early onset dementia. I think that movie is not treacly, but it, it softens things a bit. It rounds the edges. And mm. I don't think the father does it all. I don't think a more no. Michael Haneke movie, which is even more sort of bleakly harrowing than the father is. Um, and I, I really appreciate that because I think in that toughness, that is where you get to the actual, mm-hmm. you know, sort of care and sympathy because there's mm-hmm. not, it's not surrounded by a bunch of bullshit. I was going to say just, it's, it's good to see an actor of Anthony Hopkins's age still like reaching for actual, material you know like i guess elaine stritch is a bad reference for people from his age group when she is one of my only references from that period but i think like she was the opposite of that in the sense that she goes great i've got 10 tricks i'm going to do every single one of them every time i go on stage and that's it she wasn't doing any work anymore for the past like eight the the last like eight to ten years of her life she wasn't but this is like same generation same kind of age as her but i mean really just like I don't know, like creating something that comes from primal well, material. Well, it's like, interesting because he did officially retire a few times, I feel like, or said as much. Right. And in real life, Richard, do you know this, that he has a daughter himself? And of course, doing the doing the interviews and stuff for this role about a father and daughter, he refuses to answer questions that he even has a child. He doesn't know if he has grandchildren. Apparently, he had a daughter and something happened 20 years ago and they've never spoken since. And he very pointedly is like, I won't talk about her and I won't talk to her. What do we make of that? That's intense. I had no idea about that, Yeah, actually. I'm actually just now looking on his Wikipedia, like the personal life section, and it's like, I... I don't know that I've ever known anything about. Well, Busy, you have a theory. Well, I have two theories. So she, her name is Abigail. Anthony Hopkins is very open about the fact that he is a recovering alcoholic. And he kind of goes the unusual extra step that public figures don't usually, which is to say that AA saved his life. Like he specifically attributes it to Alcoholics Anonymous. He's been sober 50 years, 5-0. 5-0. Um, And because Aaron and I have been fascinated by the story of him being estranged from his daughter since we started this podcast, I have read interviews with him where he sort of hints that she she herself may struggle with substance abuse. Mm -hmm. But then I've also read that that's not true. So it's it's unclear what's happening, but it's it seems very sad. And it does. If that's true, it would make sense. There are some people in the program, quote unquote, who are super like you you have to cut people out of your life who are still using or who even potential grandchildren. But that to me also feels very to use that language feels very unrecovered and very un 
unspiritual and unempathetic to just say, I don't even know if I have grandkids and I'm going to leave it at that. And it's not even like that he's saying, and I don't want to talk about it. No, he's not. He's saying, I don't care. I don't, it's not, it's not important for me to have that relationship. I also read today for the first time though, that he has Asperger's. Oh, I did not know that about Anthony Hopkins. So that might, how does he conjure? No idea. It might add a layer of some explanation as to kind of turned off at times about when he talks or how plainly he speaks about this lack of a relationship with his only child. Hmm. Yeah. It's maybe, Maybe this is another show. What's interesting about the movie is that his character is named Anthony or Anthony as the British pronounce it. And in one scene, he gives his birthday and that's actually Anthony Hopkins' real birthday. It's this shit that I'm just like, Uh -uh. what are you trying to say? You know, exactly. Is he is this? Do you think this is his sort of uh, olive branch to his daughter? No, it's a big fuck you to his daughter. Why would you take this role, which is about the shattering of this relationship as potentially your last role and one you know you can nail? You know, you got that Shadowlands cry. Interesting. Mm -hmm. There's that scene in the end. He has that Welsh. He has the Anthony Hopkins has a Welsh accent. And my grandfather was born in Wales. And he had a little he didn't have a full accent, but he had a little hint of it. And my mom's name is Anne, which is the character of Olivia Coleman. And there's a scene where she's helping him put his sweater on. And he looks at her and he says, Anne, (laughs) thank you for everything. And that scene. Flawless accent. What does she say? Tiny daddy? Little daddy. daddy. I thought that was interesting, and this goes along with your theory, Erin, about the fuck you, is that she, in that scene, Olivia Coleman says nothing. She doesn't say you're welcome. She doesn't say I love you. She doesn't hug him. She looks at him, and she walks her into her back and walks away. It's very interesting. (laughs) My my review of The Father would be, quote, interesting, period. Interesting, Anthony. Very or just interesting? (laughs) So we're going to do our Oscar-themed dad and not-dad picks, and I will just remind everyone what that actually means. Um, We make a decision of someone or something that is our dad, and when we do that, it means that we think it or they have recently shown big boss energy tempered by compassion, intelligence, and or vulnerability. And if something or someone is not our dad, it means that we think that personal thing has recently been infuriating, tragic, cruel, or just a massive disappointment. We normally do that's the framework of the entire show. So this time it's just going to be rapid fire. Aaron, who have you got for your dad and not dad? I have like a documentary theme today. So time is my dad. Not my dad in the documentary Up For Best is My Octopus Teacher, which is technically a great film in terms of like examining sea life. It is a documentary about a divorced dad's interspecies love story that had me recommending it to my parents, but also sympathizing with his ex-wife because he framed the quest as a way to get closer to his son. Mm. It's, It's a great nature documentary, but it's like if... Orlando Bloom were less attractive and grew up to be like a sad sack underwater photographer who becomes obsessed with a female octopus and her plight and then has to uh, whine a lot in the I don't know. It's fine. It was fine. Not not for, not my dad. 
Okay, who was your dad? Oh, time. Time. Time, the documentary time. Time, the doc, yeah. Okay, great. I just picked two docs to juxtapose. Good. Richard, who did you have? For dad, I had um, recent SAG Award and winner and Oscar nominee, um, Ye Jung Yoon, the great uh, Korean actress who plays the grandmother of Minari. Oh, yeah. uh, Saying, uh, who cares if I drank a little pee? It was fun in Minari. (laughs) 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 Great. Terrific line. line. And my not dad is not necessarily related to this year's Oscars, though it concerns a two-time Oscar nominee. Uh, my not dad is the director and writer Ben Falcone, who is running his wife mm. Melissa McCarthy's career into the ground. Oh, uh, oh my God! Say more! Say more! Sassy, they have a new movie sassy. out uh, that I just reviewed called Thunder Force. It's on Netflix about superheroes. It's very bad, and this is their fifth <sighs> movie together, and. Everything oh. she does with that, well, not everything, but a, most of what she does without him is great. And then everything she does with him is much less so. Yeah, she's a national treasure. Yeah, and I just, and like, can you ever, can you ever forgive me is such an exquisite movie and she's excellent in it. Oh and my to God, follow that yes. up with two of her husband's terrible movies is just depressing. So he needs to go work with someone else. Or not work. Is this all because of Bridesmaids? Like they have the, the dynamic on the airplane and they were just like, let's build a whole franchise out of this scene i guess maybe that was part of it yeah i mean he but he doesn't really act with her in most of these movies i think he just like she she got really successful she'd been on tv show for ages and so she'd been working for a long time but she's now a movie star and he kind of came along for the ride and uh now has to direct these movies and he doesn't do it well and um i feel bad for her he's no nick offerman no. Megan Mullally no. and Nick Offerman. <laughs> yeah, though I does the partnership does not seem as fruitful for both as uh as Mullally and Offerman. Well done. Busy, what are you going? Um well my dad is uh, I'm not being that imaginative, but I'm going to do what I always say, mm-hmm. I don't like doing and equate sexuality with my dad. Oh yeah, you often don't like to sexualize your father. I know, and I and I'm not big on that as you know, Matt. Um, my father this week is Stephen Yuen, star of Minari, plays the father of Minari. I'm thrilled for him. He's nominated for his role. He broke out of the confines. I mean, many years ago, he's been off of The Walking Dead, one of the worst TV shows on the face of the planet. It's still on? How is it still on? Or there's there's spinoffs of it that are still on? Um, and most people did nothing after that because it's a career killer. And he has thrived. I also really love the fact that he owns a small terrier poodle named Agnes. <laughs> that very much makes me feels like big boss energy. I feel like I'm. This isn't going to be very popular, but not my dad. Is the concept of best original song? I'm tired of it. Like just no songs. <laughs> they're always bad. They're all. It's always like a Diane Warren ballad, and they're always dumb and long and bad and i just feel like we could just get rid of them we don't need best songs we don't need them the end. it's a very controversial okay. category and um the, a lot of the reason they think they do it is so they can get big musical performances at the ceremony right. but i would say diane warren has been nominated like three thousand times and never won oh, so they should just enough. give it to her this year and then they can get she just move past won. it yeah dissolve the whole category um, my dad is Anne Roth, American costume designer, who was the costume designer on Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. This is Amazing. an 89-year-old woman who is now tied uh, with James Ivory and the late, fuck, what was her name? Anne Vargas? Jane Vargas? 
the anyway. one from yeah Titanic or whatever. Yeah, sure. Yeah, for being nominated for an Academy Award, the oldest. You know, there are three of them. They're all eighty nine years old. If you just look up Anne Roth on Google, there's a picture of her in glasses, fake fur, jewels. You know, she's a broad. This is a tough broad who knows what she's yeah. doing. She also, I watched the 30-minute documentary thing after um, My Rainey's Black Bottom where Octavia Davis explains that Anne Roth did so much research and they had hundreds of extras and she went to every single extra and explained why historically they would be wearing this outfit. And I just was like, and then you see her, she's interviewed, she's leaning back in a chair. She's like basically doing her one-woman show. She has all the dry one-liners and I'm like, there's a broad i'm never gonna get tired of broads um and she's <laughs> one of them. Anne roth nice. what an american institution also my not dad the person who is not my dad is just the handsomeness of the main character of hillbilly elegy which i was mm. i'm obviously ambivalent about it but i'm just like oh god kind of a white know. savior male who's also really handsome could almost be not a jake lacy i couldn't pull him out of a lineup yeah couldn't i tell either. you what Interesting. yeah couldn't either um so richard let's do your picks who is gonna win take us through can you do it yeah where would you like me to start well let's do best actress okay well starting with the hard one so mm -hmm. that is up in the air because andrew day from the united states first billy holiday which is a not a great movie but she's pretty good in it uh first time acting role for her first time acting really yeah i believe so yeah um whoa she won the golden globe which Mm -hmm. is not really a good predictor because that's the Hollywood Foreign Press and they don't have anything to do with anything else and they, that award show should be destroyed. But anyway, so she got some momentum for that, got to give a good speech, wasn't nominated at the SAGs, and Viola Davis won at the SAGs. So going, but she is, Andrew Day is nominated for an Oscar. So it's kind of a tie between her, Viola Davis, and Carrie Mulligan from Promising Young Woman. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm going to say mm -hmm. Viola Davis, but we'll okay. see. So best supporting actress. Who uh, also very hard. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Yeo Jung Yoon from Minari, but it could be good old Glenn. Best actor. Definitely Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman from Ma Rainey, no question. Right. One of 100%. the very, very few posthumous Oscar wins. There have been plenty of nominations, but not many wins. Um, best supporting actor. Daniel Kaluuya from Judas and the Black Messiah, no question. Oh, so good. Okay. Um, best director. Uh, me. I think I'm going to win, finally. So I'm... Yeah. <laughs> finally. Yeah, no, I mean, I I really have been... I didn't want to say that I thought you would win either, yeah. but I just thought, you know, let's see how you lead. So this. I yeah. only directed the Glenn Close scenes from Hillbillyology, but that does count. <laughs> it's enough of the percentage of the movie. Um, or yeah. just her wig. I think that Best Director is going to go to <laughs> Chloe Joffre, who did Nomadland, um, which will make yes, her only so the good. second woman to win Best Director ever. Um, okay, so ordinarily animated isn't in, in this, but I want to know. You said that you don't think Onward's going to win. My guess would be Soul, the Pixar film. Okay. Uh, or mm -hmm. Wolfwalkers, which is an interesting, uh, rare hand-drawn animated film from Ireland. And is on Apple TV Plus, if you care to watch it. It's pretty, it's good. Okay, best film. Nomadland, I think, mm. is going to win. Okay. Yeah, it has. Has that won things yet? Yes, it's won... It won at the Producers Guild, which is really a really big sign. Good um, predictor. And then the DGA Awards are soon. It wasn't nominated for Best Ensemble Cast at the SAGs. That went to Trial of the Chicago mm -hmm. 7. I don't think that means that 
Trial of the Chicago 7 is going to win Best Picture. I think I still think it's Nomadland. So if you agree or disagree with any of our dad, not dad picks, or any of, of course, Richard's picks for Academy Award winners, um, or you have any of your own, sound off in our Instagram comments or send us a DM. We are at Tell Me About Your Father. Richard, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. You're a real pro at this, you know. Did you know? Well, I, you guys are pros, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just happy to be, you know, here. Nominated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Erin Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tell Me About Your Father and become a Tell Me About Your Father subscriber at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather for exclusive access to our series Bad Dads, which lays out why certain celebrities are dreadful fathers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>